0: Well, ministry is one of the defining characteristics of the Christian, and that's because we are all called to minister in one way or another. And although we may not have a formal ministry as the Apostle Paul does, and we probably won't have a ministry that has the depth of the Apostle Paul's ministry, the truth of the matter is that if you are a believer, you have some sort of ministry. In other words, you are called to serve others. It's not necessarily that you have an official title within the local church, but you minister, you serve. And you have an influence as a believer on other people, whether you realize it or not. And so when you think about that influence, and we know that everyone influences someone to some degree, as believers, we take that more seriously because we want to influence people for the gospel. Influence people unto Christ, whether it's Christians growing in the Lord or unbelievers thinking about and turning towards repentance. And so the question for all of us is, are you going to fulfill that ministry? And in so doing, take control of your influence so that you influence not merely by happenstance, but with intentionality and light. If you're a Christian, I'm going to assume that the Answer to those rhetorical questions is yes. And so the next question is how do I do this? How do I influence? How do I minister in a way that is biblical, in a way that honors God, in a way that takes God's strength and His will and moves people towards greater godliness or repentance? Well, everyone's ministry, everyone's abilities, everyone's circumstances are going to be different. They are all different. But there are some general principles that we can learn. And who better to learn from than the master of ministry, the Apostle Paul. And he was the master because he followed the master, Jesus. ministry methods to emulate from the life of the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see these six methods not commanded. They're not imperatives in the Greek to get fancy. But they are exemplified for us in the life of Paul. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and our passage for the morning is verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 9, where Paul talks about his plans, but we learn a lot about the right way to do ministry. Let me read for you from the NAS. He says, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Six ministry methods to emulate from the life of Paul. And you will see that this is not six methods that are an array that you can choose from, but they all are necessary to do things biblically. They almost build one upon the other. And so for effective ministry, we must practice all six of these, six ministry methods to emulate from the life of Paul. The first is plan precisely. Plan precisely. Let me read verse 5 again for you. Paul says to the Corinthians, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. So we see that Paul, as he does many times, makes definite plans to visit the Corinthians. He even has a specific route, a specific itinerary, if you will. Now, although this specificity would be sorely lacking according to our modern standards, you have to understand that the way travel was back then there could not be a specific arrival time, let alone an arrival date. Travel was slow, bad things can happen, you couldn't jump on a plane, there were no GPS trackers, you couldn't text to say uh, where you were at that moment. The best he could do is send a letter, but the letter would go by foot, so it would arrive not much earlier than him, if at all. This idea, this concept, as is True in many developing countries, even today, probably added to that hospitable nature of people that we read about in biblical times, as they had to remain open and receptive for visiting family and friends, sometimes even strangers who could not communicate their plans as they went. They would just show up. But the point is that, as much as possible, Paul had definite plans. I'm going to Corinth, and I'm going to go the long way through Macedonia. And at this point, if you remember, it's been several years since Paul had seen the Corinthians, since he had physically been in Corinth. And from this passage, we see that his plan was to, sp- to spend late spring and summer there. And First, again, he says he would go to Macedonia. This was the Roman province which is important for us because it contains cities that are familiar to us from the New Testament. So within this Roman province of Macedonia was Philippi. So that would be uh, the city and the believers in that city that received the the letter that we know as Philippians. Uh, Also in Macedonia was Thessalonica, which we uh, get the recipients of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, a part of which was just read for us this morning. And then Berea. Uh, probably most famous for Paul's commendation of being, you know, like the Bereans. You've heard that phrase, "Be like the Bereans," and that they studied the Scriptures in order to see if what Paul was teaching was true. That comes from Acts 17:10 through 11, which says, "The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea." And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. That was their custom, as you know. Then verse 11, again in Acts 17, says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, and here it is, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now I know I'm rabbit-trailing here, but I want to give you an important side note about Berea or the Bereans or that phrase we use today, be like the Bereans. You've probably heard of churches called Berean Church. In many churches today, there are small groups or ministries named after the Bereans. And this arises out of that same principle that we often hear we need to be like the Bereans, which is often, which is a way of saying we need to study, we need to receive the word eagerly, but more to the point, people use it to say, well, we need to study the Scriptures. And it comes from this passage that I just read from you from Acts 17. And that's true. And that's fine. We need to study the Scriptures. It is fine to call your ministry Berean whatever or Berean church. But we have to understand something about the immediate context. We cannot take this verse and argue that we are more noble than other believers because we study the scriptures. No. What the Bereans were doing, when you look at the context, was studying the teachings of Paul and Silas about Jesus Christ and then studying the scriptures they had, which was only the Old Testament. So they were studying the Old Testament prophecies to see if what they were saying, much of which later became the New Testament, was true. To see if the Old Testament prophecies lined up. In other words, they heard this apostolic preaching and said, well, does this match up with the Old Testament prophecy, the Scriptures? So, this was before the New Testament was recorded. They were doing something that we cannot do today nor do we need to do today and so i just want to be fair to the text and to that phrase we need to be like the bereans because technically that means to study the old testament to see if jesus christ really is the messiah which i don't think anyone does when they claim i want to be like the bereans okay again not wrong to use that phrase but as you know I cannot resist helping you see things biblically and accurately. Back to our text. When Paul tells them he's going to go through Macedonia, he's telling them the route he is going to take. And this is very important because remember when I said he couldn't just say, like, I'm going to be here on this day, right? He can give a general idea. He talks about maybe spending the winter there because It would be give or take a few days or even a few weeks, depending on travel. But the reason telling them this route and him deciding to go this route is very important because he is currently in Ephesus, which, if I could draw an air map, would be right here. And there's the Aegean Sea, and Corinth is right here. So he could easily just go west across the Aegean Sea, not easily because traveling by ship was difficult by then, but quicker and hit Corinth. Instead, he is going to go to Macedonia, which is on the northern tip of the GNC. Sea. So he's saying, I am going to go the long route and go up the eastern shore of the Aegean by foot, go to Macedonia, obviously to minister to those other churches there, and then go all the way down the western side of the GNC Sea to Corinth. In other words, don't expect me to be there quickly by ship. I'm going to take the long route. Okay, So ultimately, he would take like a horseshoe route rather than just across the water. As far as the Corinthians are concerned, again, they now understand that this is going to be a bit longer. He's going to visit other churches in Macedonia. Obviously, it would be easier, quicker to just cross the sea But, for Paul, it would not be effective for his ministry, because as we know, the scope of his apostleship isn't limited to the Corinthians. It is also helpful to know that when he says he is going through Macedonia, he is indicating his route. It's not to imply that he's just going to pass through, just spend a few hours there, or just an overnight, right? We do that sometimes. We use that term to mean we're not stopping there. We're just going to drive through. That's not what he means. What he is indicating is that he's making a tour of the various churches to minister to them. But at this time, it's not going to be an extensive visit as his current visit to Ephesus, again, going on three years now. For us... When it comes to modern day ministry in the church or to people outside of the church, we must begin by having firm plans. Where are you going? Why? What are you going to say? Who are you meeting with? How are you going to meet with them and minister to them? Obviously, depending on the ministry, some of these aspects will be more concrete than others, and there are times ministry comes unplanned, such as an opportunity to share the gospel, or you just suddenly hear about a friend who's hurting. But in terms of planning for ministry, we all need to have plans for how we are going to serve. For example, there, excuse me, before the example, depending on the ministry, some of these aspects will be fluid. Some will be certain. For example, I knew that I was going to come here at 11 a.m., start the service, and preach shortly thereafter. I knew I was going to minister to whomever came and sat in these chairs as well as whoever is on the live stream. However, I didn't know who would come this morning. I also still don't know who's on the live stream. I definitely don't know who may listen to this online or on the radio at a later date. Another example, we have a group that I recently emailed you about that is aptly named Outreach. They know they will go share the gospel this afternoon in a specific location, I believe Central Park. They don't know who they will come across, if anyone at all, but they do know what they will generally say, the gospel. They don't know the exact sentences based on the conversation. On the other hand, in ministry, there are times when you have a specific meeting, a specific place with a specific person with a specific time limit. All that to say, we need to have plans in our ministry. I'm going to serve in this area. I'm going to go serve in this area that meets on Wednesday nights, on Sunday mornings, whatever it may be. We have a prayer meeting. We're going to pray for these four missionaries. We need to have specific plans. And all of this means, as a believer, yes, you can trust God's sovereignty. You can believe that He has planned everything. You can believe in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And you can maintain humility in service all the while making definite plans. You ask, but shouldn't I be open to God changing those plans? Absolutely. But He can't change what's not there. Changing assumes there is something to change. And that leads us to our second ministry method to emulate from the life of Paul. Adjust accordingly. Adjust accordingly. Look at verse 6. And perhaps, maybe, so not definite, I will stay with you, again he's speaking to the Corinthians, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. What we see here is that on top of his definitive, precise plans, Paul leaves room for adjustments. We all know that plans change, and this is especially true when it comes to ministry, mainly because ministry has to do with people, not projects, not deadlines, not dates. And Paul tells the Corinthians that he doesn't know yet how long he will stay with them or if he will stay at all. The word perhaps shows us that he is flexible. He is willing to adjust his plans. And with that is a measure of uncertainty. And that's okay. It's not that he doubts God's sovereignty. He's not doubting God's goodness or his provision. It's just that what God's plan is, is not always revealed to us. And we do know that grammatically in the Greek, he is emphasizing the word you over the word stay, seemingly minor point. But the issue there is he's emphasizing to the Corinthians, is not just that I happen to be there, I'm going to see you, and I'll need a place to say, stay. He's saying, it's about you. I want to stay with you. That's why I'm coming. In other words, it's about ministry. Well, the practical reality of Paul's timing was that if he decided to stay for some time, He would have to stay for the entire winter. Because in that time and place, people generally did not travel by land between November 11th and March 10th because of the weather, making travel more difficult. Sea travel was pretty much shut down in September due to the dangers of storms, but also the inability to navigate due to cloudy skies and longer nights, again, They would navigate back then by looking at the stars. No electronics. And so when it's cloudy, they could easily get lost. And that's why he says, I may even spend the winter. Not that he doesn't want to, but he doesn't just say part of the winter or another week. He understands that if he's going to stay, it'll be all winter long. We take this back to the emphasis of you in conjunction with stay. Then combine that with what we know of Paul And we can safely conclude that whatever he decides, it is for the sake of ministry. It is for the sake of profitable service to the Corinthians. Even when circumstances out of his control, such as the weather, dictate that he has to stay. We know that Paul's not just going to say, Oh, just got caught up talking to that one family I love and now it's winter. Oh, well. Guess I have to stay to the roads open. Got any good uh, board games? No. He's going to be strategic. He's going to be ministerially productive. He's going to serve them. Then, at the end of the verse, when it's time to move on again, he says he will go wherever the Lord leads. He will be able to do this because the Corinthians will send him on his way, which back then prov- means providing some food, some money, perhaps even some people to travel with him, which is what, again, send me on would entail in that culture. And by the way, although it's not explicitly here or commanded, this is a great example to follow in our hospitality, not just caring for people through room and board while they are here, but when they leave, sending them on with food for the road, some bottles of water, gas money, whatever is needed whatever is appropriate. And by the way, from Acts 19, we do know that Paul ends up going to Jerusalem from Corinth after his, this visit to Corinth. Now, whenever we're talking about ministry in the modern local church, you understand that we're talking about this concept that we've talked about a lot before called stewardship. Right? It's, it's taking care of something in a faithful way but it's been entrusted to us by someone else. Because ministry, be it lives or the gospel or chairs or a website, whatever it is, is entrusted to us by God. And we see this in the great verse regarding spiritual gifts, 1 Peter 4.10, which I'll read for you. As each one has received a special gift, again, I always like to emphasize that it says, for anyone who has received the gift, it doesn't say that, it doesn't say if, it says as or since each one has received a special gift, clearly stating in Scripture that every believer has a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And remember, a steward is someone who takes care of something that does not belong to him but with the same care and concern as if it does belong to Him. As caretakers of that which God has given us, we need to avoid two extremes. On the one hand, we have to avoid the complete let go and let God mentality, which taken to the extreme means we put zero effort and we do nothing in the name of trusting God. Just let God do it. In the name of faith, it is actually poor stewardship. Because in the ancient world, a steward would be a slave whose master has entrusted him to take care of, could be a number of things, but for example, the education of the master's children. Now he wouldn't be a very good steward if in the name of honoring his master, just expects his master to do all the teaching, or finding the schools, or walking them to school, or whatever it is well, I trust you, you're so smart, so you do it. That's contradictory, because the master said, no, you do it, I've put you in charge of my kids' education. You teach them, you find the tutors, you walk them there, okay? And so we can't do this let go and let God thing where God has said, this, these are the people you are to share the gospel with, these are the people you are to serve, and we say, well, I trust in God's sovereignty, so I'm just going to have him do it. Well, he wants to do it and he has chosen to do it through you. So we need to do it. That's why the, that's part of why we exist. This is why there's the local church. That's why we know people. That's why God, in desiring you to honor him and not be tempted by sin, has placed you in a workplace surrounded by people who hate him. It is because He has strategically placed believers and kept us alive rather than bringing us home to the degree in His timing that we can minister and be good stewards. We actually need to, be hip- we need to avoid being hypocritical. I've recently taught my uh, oldest child something that I've taught you guys before. It's, the, it's hypocritical prayer. And one type of hypocritical prayer, or usually what is most often referred to as hypocritical prayer, is to constantly pray, for example, let me take my kids for example, to pray for good grades but then not study. As if God will just miraculously give them good grades. More to the point for us to pray that someone will come to Christ. We pray over and over again for that person's salvation and we never share the gospel. That's hypocrisy, right? Pray for a good service and that the people at Grace Church of the Bay Area would be encouraged and then you do nothing to encourage them. That's hypocritical prayer. The second extreme, besides let go and let God, that we must avoid as stewards is adhering so stringently to our plans that we don't budge from them even when it's clear from Scripture that we need to budge. Even when it's clear that continuing on will not be God-honoring. Oh, I really believe that. So what do I need to do to be a Christian? Sorry, time's up. Right? We would never do that. But that's an extreme example. To stick to our schedule and our desires and our plans so much that we leave God out of it or rather we push God out of it two extremes we need to avoid and what we learn from the master steward the apostle Paul in our first two points is that it is not just okay but good and right to make plans but we must also adjust accordingly but when do we adjust when do we know when we are to shift our plans when we're involved in ministry I want to give you some broad uh, categories and where we can know to do that. This is in no way a comprehensive list, but these are some clear times we must adjust our plans. Firstly, when staying on the path leads ineb- inevitably to sin. Okay, I'm not just saying, oh, you're always angry, and so no matter what you do in ministry, you'll get angry, so avoid it. That's not what I'm talking about if the actual ministry is leading to some sort of sin. I was going to counsel this person and say these words from Scripture. And then I'm going to give them this homework and give them this guidance. But what they are doing is taking that and twisting it and using it as justification for divorce, I'm going to adjust reword, okay? Because if I stick with this plan, it will lead inevitably to sin, which is their divorce, okay? Things like that. Secondly, when circumstances make the original plan impossible or pointless, not difficult, impossible, okay? Impossible or pointless. For example, I plan to move, and I've researched churches. I plan to serve at Church A. You go there, Church A no longer exists. Impossible. I want to share the gospel to Unbeliever X. Someone got there first. Unbeliever X is now Believer X. Kind of pointless, right? To evangelize that person. Okay, again, extreme examples. And what I mean when I say not hard but impossible is we need to understand that sometimes we think God is closing a door, which, sticking with the analogy, usually means He's opening up another, obviously, because He doesn't want us just to say, oh, that ministry's closed, so I guess it's back to PlayStation. No, there's something else, somewhere else that you can serve. But it may just mean not now. You got denied a visa to go on that mission field. It doesn't mean he's closing that mission field. Try again, right? Maybe it means next year. Maybe it means he's protecting you from crazy politics or a COVID explosion. I don't know, whatever it is, right? And I know people who have tried and tried and then eventually they got in and now they're ministering and others who tried and tried and it did become impossible because the government said no you are blacklisted you will never be allowed into our country you are on a list our embassy the u.s embassy your government knows you will never come into this country now it's impossible and that specific individual i'm thinking of is now the pastor of a thriving church in kansas instead of in the Middle East, okay? Thirdly, the third time uh, we would know to adjust our plans, and this is so important, this is so important. When you, as a Christian, believe it's best. You say, oh, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. You know what sin is. You know what biblical churches look like. You can decide based on your pursuit of godliness and godly obedience when it's time to say, you know what, this is no longer working. I'm now just throwing pearls before swine. This is not happening. People are not interested. People are not responding to this ministry, right? You can decide. God has given us discernment. He has given us consciences. He has given us His word. Obviously, we need to be careful with our own sin and our own laziness and our own selfishness. But you say, But I I made all these plans prayerfully, and this is what I believe God said the plans were. How can I change? Well, do you really believe that God is involved in the planning and not the actual working out of the plan? He may shift, He may change. He may have had given you that plan so that you can learn how to change later on. We don't know. When it comes to ministry, it is often only in the midst of actually ministering that we recognize what the next steps are. And that's we see this with the Apostle Paul. Maybe I'll stay, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll stay for the winter. Do not doubt your God-given and Holy Spirit-prompted consciences and wills. You are given God's Word and biblical discernment. Feel free to make changes, to stay, leave early, or even stick with the plan. And no matter what ends up happening with your schedule, make sure that your ministry is biblical. How do I do that? First and foremost, foundationally, love. Our third ministry method is love longingly. Love longingly. Verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. No, that's not enough, Paul says. For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. Paul has made plans as we've seen. He's leaving some open because he doesn't know what the Lord has in store for him. But what he does know is that he wants to stay with the Corinthians for some time because of his affection for them, because he loves them. Not just because they are a project, but as we know from reading 1st and 2nd Corinthians that he loves them. He's hoping for more than just a passing visit. He wants to remain. He wants to stay for a time. Fellowship. And we've seen many offenses against Paul in 1st Corinthians. More if you read 2nd Corinthians. But His love remains steadfast. Because as ours should be, His love is ultimately in and for the Lord. And out of that flows His love for the Corinthians, Philippians, Thessalonians, whoever it may be. Without love, any service, even in the name of God, to God's people, is pointless. We saw this back in 1 Corinthians 13. Flip back there a couple pages. 1 Corinthians 13, most of you know from the famous passage of the 15 descriptions of what true love is, biblical agape love. But he prefaces that in verses 1 through 3 with this. And it makes the description of love all the more important. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Annoying. Pointless, obnoxious. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. You see this? He says, if I have such faith in God, that Corinthians, I'll come to you closer because I don't have to go through those mountains that everyone does because I can just move them. Because of my powerful faith in God. But if I'm not doing it out of love, means nothing. Verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, medically the most painful way to die, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Even if I was cru- crucified even if I was burned, if I sold everything to give to the poor, if it wasn't out of a love for those poor, it profits me nothing. God is not honored. God is not pleased. There is no reward in heaven for that. God looks at the heart. Love is what makes ministry, your ministry, worthwhile. And love is what gives your ministry worth. I'll say that again. Love is what gives your ministry worth and what makes your ministry worthwhile. And friends, when you look at ministry, if you have trouble serving, if you don't know where to serve, you're struggling with serving other believers or struggling with being motivated to sacrifice for others. As a pastor, I have to tell you, As a pastor who longs to see this church running effectively and people serving, I have to tell you, if you struggle with that, you need to stop looking for the right ministry and start loving people. Start loving people. Stop bouncing around from ministry to ministry, church to church, finding the good fit. Start loving people Biblically. We know that Paul loves the Corinthians. He wants to see them in person and stay a while. But only if the Lord wills. And that leads us to ministry method number four. At the end of verse seven, he simply says, if the Lord permits. The mindset involved with the phrase, if the Lord permits or better known today as if the Lord wills or Lord willing, is one that we are called to have at all times as Christians. It is a mindset of trust and obedience. And we see this mentioned and lived out in Acts 18, Philippians 2, Hebrews 6. It's all over the Scriptures. But most clearly, in terms of instruction to have this mindset, is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. I invite you to turn there with me. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And as you turn there, let me briefly go back to my last point and just elaborate and clarify that the reason I said what I said is that if you truly love people, then there'll be a greater willingness to serve regardless of whether it fits in your schedule, your comfort level, even your gifting. And there may need to be a shift there if that's just not clearly not where the Lord has gifted you. But if you truly love people, you're just going to want to serve. And then eventually the right ministry will fall into place for you. But jumping back to James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, James writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, We will live and also do this or that. But as it is, and this is so, you know, when we think about our schedules and we think about how we just kind of barrel through with whatever we want, verse 16 is a little painful to hear. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Again, we know from the Scriptures, it's not that we have to say those words every time, if the Lord wills. You go into lunch, if the Lord wills. You come with us, if the Lord wills. You don't close in prayer, if the Lord wills. But the idea is we understand that to be true. We understand that we submit to the Lord's planning and purposes. And I call this submit sacrificially. I'm obviously talking about submitting to His sovereignty, But submitting to that in this way takes sacrifice. Because we will often do things that we don't initially want to do. We will take more chunks of our schedule, our bank accounts, our time, whatever it is. Submitting to what the Lord wills takes sacrifice of your time, of your plans, of your expectations, of your sense of comforts. Perhaps most importantly, your need for control. Definitely don't just say it if you're just saying it. Right, we, we have these, these phrases that are so powerful, but we learn to just say it, and we don't mean it, right? All right, kids, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this food. Are you really thankful? Are you truly... Igno- Look, I've talked about this before, right? Right? We can be thankful for food and acknowledging it's from God and recognize this is pretty gross, okay? It's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean being thankful all of a sudden everything tastes good. Oh, you know, there's starving kids in Africa. It doesn't apply. It's just having a thankful heart, right? And I don't want to knock people who do this because I assume you really mean it, but love you, bye, love you, bye, love you, bye. bye. And it bothers your spouse or your kids or your parents, if you don't say love you before bye, but it's just become a thing you say like bye, right? It's become something like, how are you doing? Fine. You know, as you walk bleeding to the emergency room or whatever, right? It's just something we say and we got to be careful on either end of, well, if the Lord wills. But do you really believe that? Are you really willing to change if the Lord wills? There are some who, to truly adjust their plans based on what the Lord clearly desires is not a sacrifice at all. But again, in all of us, there needs to be a willingness to sacrifice if necessary. Because the principle is very simple. God is in charge. We are not. God is in charge. You are not. Oh, that's so true. I I bet you really get that as a pastor, don't you? God is in charge. It's His Word. It's His people. True, but God is in charge of your pocketbook. God is in charge of your business. God is in charge of your marriage. God is in charge of your children. God is in charge of your commute. God is in charge of every cent that you have. You are stewards, not just of ministry, but of everything. It's not simple to say these are my kids, but you understand that it is a stewardship from God. Your name is on the mortgage. It's not wrong to say, yes, this is my house, but you understand that it is a gift from God and you are a steward. We must submit to his sovereignty sacrificially. Number five, engage exhaustively. Engage exhaustively. Verse 8, I desire to come, but he says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Again, he's already been there for three years. Three years. Right? Doesn't seem like a long time for us, but back then, you know, he would go on these missionary journeys. He wasn't at places for very long. Now we know he's writing in the spring before Pentecost. His reference to Pentecost is simply using the common schedule. He's not going back to his Judaism. But the spring before Pentecost would have been fine weather to travel. He even implies that there may be a chance that he may visit the Corinthians and move on or stay for the winter. So theoretically, he could shift things around and not be stuck in Corinth for the winter and move on to other churches. But he's clearly, even after three years, not done with his ministry in Ephesus. He needs to stay to complete his ministry. He is engaging exhaustively. He is not looking at the schedule. He's not looking at the weakness and frailty of his body and all the beatings and shipwrecks and the fact that he may die at any moment and say, man, I need to get to Corinthians now. He says, no, I'm not done here yet. I long to see the Corinthians and the Brians and the Philippians and the Thessalonians, by the way, but I'm not done here yet. Paul, we've tracked your ministries. Three years is a long time. Quiet. I'm not done. We need to engage exhaustively. Christian, finish the work. So much in the church, the local church is left half done or undone. People pick up. Because they're uncomfortable, they're bored with it, they can't figure it out, or they leave because of a job change or whatever it is. They expect others to be able to figure out how to finish, to decipher their notes. When people who are involved in ministry here at Grace, an official ministry, I, and plan to leave, I always tell them the same thing finish strong. Finish strong. Don't get so consumed with the next thing that you check out of the current thing. Finish well. That can mean finding someone to replace you, training them, showing them what to do if that's appropriate. This isn't your job. This isn't your career. Where you can just quit and then they just find another college grad or whoever and they can just pick up. It's not how it works in the church. Again, it's about people. Get out of the mentality that you can just leave and someone will figure it out and take over. Finish strong. And finishing well is not just about when you leave our church or move somewhere else. It's even in a particular ministry. It could be one conversation this afternoon in Central Park. Finish that conversation well. Tell him how to follow up. Tell him what he needs to become a Christian. It may be a particular meeting or series of meetings. Finish well. This is more than just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. This is about completing your ministry and being exhaustive in what the Lord has called you to do. He doesn't call you to have a conversation sprinkled with pieces of the gospel. He calls you to evangelize and make disciples. So finishing strong means telling them everything they know to be, they need to know to believe, to follow up, to ask questions, to pray with them if they're interested, to send them to a church. And then if they are saved, what does the rest of the great commission say? Disciple them, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Pull them into the church. Get them somewhere where they can be taught everything about the Scriptures. Don't run out of time and say, sorry, small group, we can't pray tonight. Small group is praying for each other. Take the time to pray. It also means... Oh, sorry, guys. You wouldn't be, be okay with that With from me, right? Finish well. And if it is about moving, this is about saying goodbyes properly. This is about making sure that fellowship is not just abruptly broken. It's adjusting relationships so they are okay never seeing you again this side of heaven or they're prepared to connect with you occasionally long distance. Finish well. You may not have much say in when your ministry ends, but you have a lot to say in how it ends. Outside of disease or death, you have a lot to say about how your ministry ends. And finally, our sixth ministry method to emulate from the life of Paul, continue categorically, which means unconditionally. We've seen plan precisely and then adjust accordingly. And when you have done that, love longingly. We are to submit sacrificially to the sovereignty of God. We are to engage exhaustively and finish our ministries, finish well. And finally continue categorically or unconditionally. He says in verse 9, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's explaining why he's staying in Ephesus longer. Paul's simply using the picture of an open door in the same metaphorical way that we do today. It's opportunity. There's an opportunity. And some opportunity to advance the gospel that is proving, quote, effective is here. In other words, Paul is saying it is bearing fruit, which helps explain why he says it's not just an open door, it's a wide open door. And this would be reason for any of us to stay where we are, to continue in our ministry. But then he says something that seems illogical at first glance. There's a wide open door, so I'm going to stay, and there are many adversaries. For most people, an open door... And adversaries are opposing ideas. For most people, the presence of adversaries or any sort of resistance means the door is closed. But Paul doesn't see it that way because God doesn't see it that way. There are many opponents, enemies, haters. But that does not negate the ministry and it doesn't negate the fruit of the ministry. In fact, Paul doesn't just mention this as an aside or a prayer request. Oh, by the way, there's some people who don't like me here. No, he's listing this as one of his reasons for staying. It's not that he's looking for a fight or relishes in being opposed. He understands that there are opponents to the gospel, which in many ways is why he needs to keep doing what he's doing preaching the truth, converting sinners, strengthening believers. This is part of Christian ministry. Jesus said to his scared, unintelligent, confused disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Matthew 10.16 God speaking directly to Ananias about Saul who became Paul right after the conversion of Paul says, He, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mind. Remember, because they're confused, right? Saul, this is the guy you want to convert because he was a persecutor of Christians. And so God clarifies in Acts 9, He is a chosen instrument of of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We know all that Paul went through in his suffering. God promised it to Ananias, that this would happen to Paul. And then there's John 15, 18 through 19. I would have you turn there, but for the sake of time, let me just read it. If the world hates you, who? Who now? That one guy? No, the world. The world. As an entity, as a system of cross-cultural thought. They all agree. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me, Jesus Christ, before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, of course, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. This is true ministry. Listen, the world doesn't hate it when we feed the poor or help widows. It hates it when we name the name of Christ and preach the truth. They oppose it. And if those verses are true, which they are, you could even say opposition is a gauge of true biblical ministry. It's a a very sensitive gauge out here, isn't it? Where we live. Opposition is rampant. It's easy to find opposition. Opposition. So, we need to understand that open doors and adversaries go hand in hand. Because God said, they're going to hate you. That's opposition, that's opponents. Open doors and adversaries go hand in hand. Because, look, if you aren't truly ministering, there's nothing to oppose. you don't see some guy walking on the street that you've never met, you've never known, it's just an average citizen and go, oh man, I hate that guy, I'm not voting for him. He's going to ruin our city. He's not running for anything. He's just a guy trying to get some frozen yogurt. There's nothing to oppose unless you know there's something you dislike. And if we're not ministering, if we're not preaching the gospel, if we're not doing these things in the name of Christ, even if it's not actively evangelizing, walking away from the water cooler because in the name of Christ I don't gossip, shuffling that away and say fine, demote me because in the name of Christ I'm not going to lie to the IRS on these forums, sir. They oppose that. They don't like that. Bible Thumper, Goody Two-Shoes, Jesus Freak. Those are not names they use to praise us. I mean, think about that, right? It isn't, oh, you person who ruins a good time and don't believe in love is love and want to hurt these type of people or whatever it is. It's simply Jesus Freak, Bible Thumper. Because the men and women who have come before us have established enough of a testimony that they know exactly what we believe. Are we speaking out enough that people can even recognize, oh, you're one of them? Amen, hallelujah, I am. I love you, but I'm not going to do that. But you know what I will do? I'll give you the words of life so you can become just like me. No, I mean don't say it that way. <laughs> if you're not ministering, if your mouth is shut and your hands are in your pocket, your schedule's all about you and the kids, your money's all about you and the kids, there's nothing to oppose. Because, yes, God has called you out of the world. But the world loves you because you look like its own, even though you are not of them. We need to be faithful to minister in the appropriate way. Have plans, have plans that you can adjust, and in so doing, you love people. Submit sacrificially to the sovereignty of God, and in your ministry, fulfill the whole ministry. Engage exhaustively. And even in the midst of adversaries, in the, in the midst of discomfort, in other words, even if their adversary is yourself, your sin, your selfishness, your laziness, whatever it is, continue categorically. Six ministry methods to emulate from the master servant, the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you for giving us your grace that we can be stewards of in ministering to others and to all, whether in the church or outside of the church. Help us to be so proactive that we are making plans to what we want to do for your glory and then adjust. Help us to seek your will. Help us to engage fully. Help us to... Endure the onslaught of the enemies, but continue without giving up. Continue with fearing only you and not others. Most of all, Lord, help us to love. Help us to love you. Help us to love others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.